The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And this week, all of this week, uh, I'm in Singapore for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. And we're going to bring you some sort of mini episodes with snippets from the speakers and thinking that we're hearing at this forum. It's turned out to be a pretty interesting time to be doing this in this region. You've got the um, so many different summits happening, including quite prominently, obviously, the G20 summit happening right this week. Um, and that uh, important meeting between the US and Chinese presidents, which has now happened. Um, I wanted to kick us off uh, with a quick chat with our chief economist, Tom Orlick, who, um, along with me and a, and a cast of uh, fellow economists, contributed to a book thinking about uh, the risks and opportunities for the year ahead in the global economy for this forum. And there was a particularly striking kind of overview that you had. You speak to how the fundamental drivers of the global economy might have changed and what that could mean in the future. But talk us through your view. Um, so um, the big thesis that we set out in the book, Stephanie, um, is that uh, in past decades, rising global prosperity uh, was underpinned by uh, three pillars. Um, you had low inflation, and so you also had low central bank rates and low borrowing costs. Uh, you had supercharged demand from China, which spent much of the last four decades averaging an annual growth rate of 10%. Um, and after the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you had very limited geopolitical tensions. Um, Russia um, sort of being welcomed into the fold as a um, you know, potential uh, democratic market economy by Europe um, and China being welcomed into the fold uh, by the United States. Um, and of course, what we've seen in the last few months is all of those pillars being kicked away. Global borrowing costs are going to the roof. Chinese growth is going to the floor. Um, and geopolitical tensions have reached nosebleed-inducing levels. Um, so, uh, sort of the concern which we articulate uh, in this New Economy Forum report um, is that these have already sort of started to hit home in 2022, but there are also going to be problems that play out in the years ahead. And just to take uh, each of those in turn, the one that we've often talked about is in inflation. We had that uh, recent news, uh, sort of unexpected softening in, in U.S. inflation. Um, do you think we are in a better place when it comes to the, the U.S. inflation problem or are, are people overstating um, how far we might have come? So um, the, uh, the latest print for U.S. inflation uh, came in a bit below expectations. So we've got the consumer price index uh, now running at an annual rate of 7.7%. Um, 7.7% is still really, really high. Um, and the view of our US economics team uh, is that if you look at what's happening in the labor market, if you look at what's happening with wages, they're really rising at a pretty rapid pace. Um, and so 
the expectation is that even when we get to the middle of 2023, uh, we're still going to be looking at a CPI of around 4%. Um, that's way outside the Federal Reserve's comfort zone. Um, so our view is that interest rates still have a bit further to rise and they're probably going to stay at an elevated level for a pretty prolonged period. A lot of people make this about whether or not inflation is going to fall next year. I don't think there's any, we have any doubt that inflation is going to fall significantly in the US next year. It's a question of, of whether the Fed has succeeded in um, getting it fully out of the system. And we compare it to that time in the 70s. Obviously, Arthur Burns kind of um, carries the can for having made the mistakes in the US um, running the US Federal Reserve at that time. And if you look at what his own analysis of that after the fact it was interesting because they often did have inflation fall um, for uh, a year or so and then they eased on the, the tightening and that was always a bit too soon because inflation came back. Do you think that is a risk this time? So Arthur Burns uh, sort of shows up as the, the villain of uh, recent uh, monetary policy history, right? Arthur Burns was the guy who let inflation get under control, and then Paul Volcker is the hero who comes in at the beginning of the 1980s um, and sorts everything out. Um, but actually, if you sort of look at the situation which confronted Arthur Burns in the 1970s, it's kind of easy to see how he made the kind of mistakes that he did. Um, the Fed was setting policy based on forecasts for the inflation outlook. And those forecasts turned out to be too optimistic. They thought inflation was going to come down faster than it did. Well, guess what? The Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell made exactly that mistake, forecasting transitory inflation when it turned out to be sticky. Arthur Burns cut interest rates in a recession, but it was a really deep and painful recession with a lot of unemployment. And it's difficult to be the guy raising interest rates when millions of people are losing their jobs. Powell has said, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to make that mistake. We'll see. It's easy to say that ahead of the recession, harder to act on it when markets are falling and unemployment is rising. And it is interesting when you look in the sort of later period of, of that inflation fighting period, the, the Fed was often actually um, overestimating its inflation. Inflation would come in below its forecast for a period, but it would then creep back up. And it was that judgment call of how long was it going to stay down that was, that was the problem. I guess we're all going back to the 70s and learning more and more things about it. Um, your se second driver was uh, supercharged demand coming from China. Um, we're clearly not expecting this time around China to come to the rescue of the global economy as it did with the slowdown um, after the global financial crisis. Um, but we have had, just in the last week or so, some somewhat kind of mixed picture, but some suggestion that uh, the authorities are potentially moving out of the zero COVID policy a little bit faster than we might have anticipated. H how do you read it, given your Chinese expertise? So I think we've had three bits of good news out of China in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've had signals that Xi Jinping is thinking about an exit from COVID zero a bit earlier uh, than most people expected. Um, we've had a significant package of support for the property sector. Um, and just this week, uh, we've had Xi and Biden sitting down in Bali um, and the mood music was positive. They smiled. They shook hands. Um, indications of a bit of a thaw in that crucial bilateral relationship. Um, so I think there's scope for a bit more optimism 
about the immediate future for China than there was a couple of weeks ago. Um, at the same time, it's important to remember that China faces some really, really significant structural problems. Demographics have turned negative. Working age population is shrinking at a pretty rapid pace. Um, even with some additional support for the property sector, there's still a massive problem of oversupply, which is going to take years to work through. Debt is really high. Um, and even as the mood music on US-China relations improves a little bit, the substance is still pretty troubling. Let's not forget that the US has just moved to cut China off from leading edge semiconductors, um, a policy which kind of seems to aim at turning China into a kind of Amish community with their technology development frozen in place. Um, so if you put those pieces together, if you look at the average of the last four decades, China was growing at close to 10% a year. Um, ahead of the COVID crisis, that had already slowed to around 6%. On an optimistic scenario coming out of COVID, I think we're looking at a, a run rate of perhaps 4% a year. And if things go badly, even 4% could well turn out to be too optimistic. We were hearing from Mark Williams, uh, the China Economist at Capital Economics a few days ago. He puts China's growth at the end of this decade at closer to 2%. And a world which China is growing at 4% or 2% is very different to a world where China is growing at 10% big negative implications for your big commodity exporters, the Brazils, Australias, and Chiles of the world, big negative implications for the rest of Asia. Here we are in Singapore, a city-state which has flourished partly because of really good governance and really industrious population, but also because they've been swept up by the rising tide of China's economy. And if that tide is now going to recede, it's going to be tougher for Singapore and other countries in the region to outperform. Well, you've already touched on the geopolitics, which is obviously the third driver that you'd highlighted in thinking about the different kind of regime that we're now in. We actually did have the, the US trade representative um, speaking in an interview at the first day of the New Economy Forum, echoing some of the positivity that you heard, the sort of muted positivity out of the G20 meeting between um, President Biden and President Xi. How do, how do you read that, Tom? Um, I think it seems like Biden's uh, sort of domestic strength was bolstered by outperformance by Democrats at the midterms. Uh, Xi Jinping, of course, is coming out of a party congress where he managed to uh, stack all of the major jobs in the uh, Communist Party and the Chinese government uh, with his own supporters. Um, and perhaps it's that strength at home for both Biden and Xi, uh, which has enabled them uh, to sort of I guess, move towards what looks like more like a sort of a well-managed rivalry rather than a rivalry where things seem to, where there would seem to be a risk that uh, things could just spiral out of control. Tom Orlick, thank you so much. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
but we are going to hear more about uh, this ongoing question of US-China relations over the next few days at this forum. We not only heard already from the US Trade Representative Catherine Tai, but I chaired a session with the Japanese Minister of Trade, Yasutoshi Nishimura, and the Senior Minister for Singapore, Taman Shanmugaratnam. And it, I didn't get anything out of the Japanese minister when it came to the U.S. controls on semiconductors. Very important for that U.S. policy, whether or not the Japanese go along with those export restrictions um, on on chip sales uh, to China. But I did get this from Senior Minister Shanmugaratnam. There's been a lot of talk about partnership and the importance of countries working together. But the recent U.S. trade policies and, for example, the attempts to restrain exports of, of key semiconductors to China, that surely it makes it difficult for an open economy in Asia to navigate and think about the future when the U.S. appears to be trying to drive, drive lines across the map? Well, I think, first, um, there is a way forward. We haven't reached the precipice yet, and there's a way of charting a new cause uh, between the major powers as well as with the mid-sized powers and smaller nations like ourselves. It requires first, first and foremost stabilization. Just avoid dialing up the tensions, avoid further steps, avoid escalation that then becomes self-reinforcing. So that's the first order of business. But second, there's so much common interest between the US and China and between all nations in the biggest challenges we face, climate change, pandemic preparedness, and just getting growth going. Those are the biggest challenges we face, which affect the well-being of our own populations. And focusing bilateral and multilateral efforts around those large challenges in a mission-driven way, tackle pandemic preparedness, create multivalent vaccines, tackle carbon capture, clean steel, clean cement, the whole range of innovations that are still out there, still at the boundaries of what's possible and not yet viable, but invest in it. There's a whole range of investments that are in the mutual interest that we have to collaborate on, and that itself forms, forms an overarching relationship between the major powers who will otherwise be obsessed with competition and obsessed with what divides them. Thirdly, there's also scope, I think, to all do some dialing down. Many small moves that could reduce tension. Um, I mean, if you look at, objectively speaking, if you look at much of the tariff war that has taken place, it's not been in anyone's interest. It's not in the interest of American workers, not in the interest of American manufacturing, not in the interest of China, not in the interest of Singapore and the smaller nations. So there's an opportunity to dial down in everyone's interest. So it requires that new understanding, and I think there's a very important new start yesterday in the meeting between the President um, Biden and President Xi. Uh, there's an opportunity for a new understanding, but it then requires actions. Avoid further escalation, find ways to dial down, but also start exploiting this very large terrain of mutual interests that require collaborative investments, public and private, and using as best as we can the multilateral institutions. They are valuable institutions, particularly the World Bank and the MDBs. We are underusing them. 
by using them to catalyze private finance, we can actually go quite some distance to addressing that large-scale investment challenge that we have in the next 10 years. We might hear a little bit, potentially, of the dialing down. We have an opportunity for that anyway, because the US Trade Representative will be following. I'm tempted, from what you've said, to get you to do the interview. You might, uh, <laughs> you might uh, get, get some, some global uh, progress out of it. But as you said, President Biden had, um, did have some, some warmer words after his meeting, and he suggested that there wasn't a new Cold War. And yet, it has become quite common for... Biden administration officials to talk about wanting to prevent China from developing technologically in various areas. Do you think that's unhelpful? Well, I think first we, we have to recognize um, that uh, China is not the Soviet Union during the Cold War. China will continue to be a growing and emerging economy, and it will develop capabilities. You can slow the development of those capabilities, particularly in advanced semiconductors, and a few other areas, but you can't prevent China from emerging as a major player in the global economy and in the global technology space. The question is whether you eventually want China as a formidable economy to be distrustful of you, to be in a relationship of antagonism, or whether you want interdependence. And that requires drawing careful lines around what is really required to protect national security, what is something you can allow to have continued exchange and interdependence on, but you watch and you verify some element of trust and verify, and what you have open competition on. It requires some clear lines and a clear framework that draws those lines. Uh, I believe it is possible. I, I don't think the U.S. is set on a cause of collision with China, despite some of the noise you may hear. I believe it is possible to formulate this framework, and it is possible to then cooperate on the much larger challenges that both China and the U.S. and the rest of the multinational economy, the global economy, the community, uh, faces. Well, that's it from this uh, mini episode of Stephanomics, and we'll be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi, Yang Yang, and Magnus Henriksen. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.